0: Welcome to Serie Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Well, welcome, everyone. My name is Paul Markov, Vice President Energy at IHS Markit. Welcome to Siri Week Conversations by IHS Market. And today I'm joined by Professor Venkat Venkatraman, who's Professor in Management at Boston University Questrom School of Management, and by Venden Haag, Head of Worldwide Business Development of Energy at Amazon Web Services. And, and so the topic for today is, is Pathways and Principles for energy transformation, and I know that that's a that's a topic of a collaboration between you two, uh, which I think it, it sounds very interesting. I I think it'd be a good idea if uh, if maybe you could uh, each give a quick synopsis of what that actually means. Maybe Arno, you could you could start.
1: Actually, it's the the second uh, instalment of our our collaboration, uh, and as you said, yeah, truly, this talks about uh, pathways and principles for, for energy transformation, and the word transformation in this uh, in this context is is key. Um, we've known uh, that transformation in the energy business is really critical, is helping our customers and helping the energy sector as a whole transform. And get ready for the for the future. And what we try to do is actually lay out a very really structured, logical, and coordinated way to look at the transformation. And that's where there's two key principles that come in: pathways, and of course the the word principles, which are key in, in the title. and And I ask Venkat to to maybe elaborate a little bit around those those keywords pathways and uh, and principles. Thank you. <clears throat> thanks, thanks, Arnold. I think the big challenge for executives today
2: is to identify how best to use the technology to manage today and create the future at the same time. Successful companies find it easier to over invest in what they're good at today and under invest in what they need to be good at tomorrow. So pathways and principles are structured ways to get leaders today to recognize that the future is not an extrapolation of the past, but in order to get there, they can't do that in just one fell sweep. They can't do that by simply abandoning today's operations. So they have to manage today while designing for tomorrow. They have to manage the business functions for optimization today while thinking about what the business functions are gonna be tomorrow. So when we started collaborating, we both recognized that these tensions that I have observed as an academic is what Arno observed in practice. So that's what really led us to collaborate and say, how do we lay out a simple but powerful way for the executives to think about not only the logic, but how to make it happen in reality.
1: And, and, I, and I want to add maybe one, one part to that uh, discussion, Paul. Um, we talk about energy in the energy sector, but I think the, the, the methodology, the framework really is applicable to what we would call capital intensive industries. Uh, but I think from, from our background and our experience, it was easier to make it more practical and actually look at uh, the energy sector as a, as a whole. But it really is applicable to, to multiple sectors.
0: So, so it's interesting, it is a collaboration, sort of academic and, and uh, business collaboration. So what drove you to, you know, what kind of brought you together, if you like, and how does it work with the, the academic side and then the business side? So then maybe Venkat, you can talk about the academic uh, interests first.
2: Yeah, um, I've always been interested in looking at, not explaining what has happened in the past, but to really understand what is happening today to make sense out of these patterns. So when you look at digital transformation, this is an area that is happening right now. So we can't really look at one best example and then develop principles and pathways. So we need to really look at what companies are doing. So I can't do that as an academic on my own. So due to a variety of people that we knew jointly, I got connected to AWS, and very quickly, Arno and I started talking about it, and he found some of the my my writings and my interests resonating with his own. So we said, you know, let's let's try to do it together, instead of uh, doing it separately.
1: Yeah, and, and I think when you look at it from an uh, from an Amazon perspective, um, Amazon's mission is to be the earth's most customer. Uh, centric company and really what it means is is how do we help our customers whether they're individuals or whether they're, they're enterprises really be successful and it's and it's actually uh, using that 13, 14-year history that we have with the uh, Amazon Web Services, bringing that to bear, but more importantly, also bringing as Spank said, bringing the insight from an academic perspective, bringing those together, and really, hopefully, in that manner, really help our customers be successful, and really help with it, really. Uh, challenge that we're seeing in the industry, how do we help the industry transform, be ready for the future, and particularly when we know that there's so much need for energy going forward with uh, the same time, making sure we do that in a sustainable manner. And I think those two, two elements drive, uh, drove us together in, in, in combining our, our insights with the objective to help the industry and help our customers move, move forward, Paul.
0: So, I so understand collaboration, uh, what about the practical examples? I wonder if you can bring it to life, uh, Arno, what does, it, what does it mean in practical terms for, for businesses?
1: Well, we, we know that when we look at, um, at some, some of the data that over 90% of uh, the industries are engaging in, in some sort of digital uh, endeavors. Uh, we also know from that same data that uh, only 15% or so really have a very bold plan how to do it. And it's therefore not surprising that we see that 60 to 70% uh, of the companies that are engaging are not fully leveraging the value and actually are, are, are losing value and not maximizing that value. So we talk about how do we help companies move away from um, just incidental um, experiments but how do we really provide this foundation this structure to be in place I think that's really what this uh, this paper is about um, and that's what we try to do but giving them um, I wouldn't say a roadmap but giving them the foundation how to look at structure to really to really to really do that uh, it starts with uh, with leadership it, it looks at the ecosystem the network it looks at capabilities it looks at talent. Uh, but also, of course, it looks at metrics that are so important in a in business, Paul. I, I
2: think um, most senior leaders are not very familiar with technology, so they prefer delegating it to the technical experts. And the technical experts come up with proof of concepts or projects to show that technically it is feasible to do X or technically we can make Y happen but the challenge is not the proof of concept. The challenge is to bring it into the core of the organization and then scale it up. So what is important is for the executives to recognize that this cannot be delegated, but we need to recognize the business and IT working together, business and digital working together to really deliver business results in a competitive context, rather than simply technical proof of concept. And I think that is a big challenge over the next five years that I think companies need to recognize and respond.
1: So when we think about, and Venkat is spot on when he uses the word recognize, yeah, um, a lot of the, uh, the leaders that we talk to um, are, are a little bit lost in, in, in what's, what's happening. And maybe it's good to talk about what we call anti-patterns, yeah, um, it's really helping them understand um, what it is they're probably doing today and how that really compares and contrast where we think they should be uh, going and where the, em- the emphasis should be. Uh, and one of the things that we've noticed, Paul, when you talk about really practical examples is, there's a lot of what we call digital varnish uh, happening in the industry. And really what it is, it is really applying technology, as Frank had said, overlaying that to existing processes, and that's not um, what, we, uh, what we envisage that digital transformation is, uh, is about. Uh, and, and Venkat, uh, maybe you can add to that, uh, how do you see digital varnish in, the, in this environment? Yeah, the digital varnish is easy,
2: right? You take the old process, the old structure, the old talent, and we sprinkle a little bit of technology. Let's make the marketing um, executives understand a little bit of analytics. Let's bring one AI expert into the marketing organization. And the organization will reject it. The digital varnish will vanish. So we really need to redesign the processes. Where does the next generation marketing begin? And where does data and analytics end? They're really coming together. So we need to really think about every business function and every business process as designed with digital at the core rather than simply overlay it as Arno mentioned. And I love the word digital varnish because we have this false sense of comfort that we are digital, but in reality, we've just overlaid it on the old processes and covered it up.
1: And and I think there's a... Associated with that, with the digital varnish, is, a, is the second thing that we've observed is that um, we see very domain-specific point solutions, and it normally started off with uh, with a couple of people that are really interested in digital, uh, that say that want to experiment with digital, and they're getting some some really good results already. Don't get me wrong, but what we really want to make sure is that we move away from this single domain point solutions, and really look at what is the connected value chain across the entire industry. Uh, Yeah, the
2: collaboration both inside a company across functions and collaboration across partners in a value chain can now be enabled with a common database, common cloud connectivity, easy to share information across partners that we couldn't do before. And so we continue to operate and optimize inside the company and not think about end-to-end across the value chain. The challenge for companies now is to take an end-to-end collaborative view across both the supply chain and the demand chain to optimize it because the inefficiencies exist across functions and across companies.
0: Yeah. I've, seen you refer to, I've seen you refer to point solutions before. I mean, what, what, what is the limitation with point solutions?
1: Well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a good example. It's very easy nowadays to look at a, at a large data set um, around reliability, for instance, for, for equipment. And it's very simple to use machine learning, use our SageMaker product, for instance, within a couple of weeks to really get insight when a piece of equipment will fail, and then being able to uh, set the organization up to anticipate that failure and minimize downtime and minimize costs that come with it. That is in itself is a great success and it's really useful for a lot of our customers. But when you really think that through from a connected value chain, that piece of information, knowing when, what piece of equipment is going to fail is also very relevant for the connected value chain, for your suppliers, and actually also, as, as Sven had said, for the for the demand side. So why not use that information, not just um, across your own organization, across logistics, across planning, across material handling, but also um, with your commercial functions, making sure that your suppliers do have the right equipment, the right people available at the right point in time. It also saves them cost and it streamlines and accelerates that whole, that whole process so it's moving away from just looking at your own domain and how can that uh, that whole business process that workflow be optimized across the enterprise but as vancate also said outside of the enterprise right good yeah so let, if we could move on a bit now i've, I've read your i've read your paper
0: and i'm, I'm struck by uh the depth of it, there's lots of things in it. You mentioned, in fact, eight principles. I mean, the paper is, is called you know, Pathways and Principles for Energy Transformation. You've got eight principles. And I one if you like to highlight some of them. There's one or two that struck me. There's one about um, orchestrating a network. There's one about working backwards from the future. Uh, these, these are kind of interesting concepts. You'd
1: like to elaborate on one or two? Yeah, so we, as you said, we picked eight uh, eight principles. And the reason why we picked the eight principles is um, we did not think it was prudent um, when we talk about digital transformation to come up with a very firm roadmap that says, start here, do that, and then do it in a linear, linear fashion. What we, what we realized, and I think you've heard it in the discussion, it really is around how do you help the enterprise as a whole change and transform. And it's almost every aspect of an enterprise is going to be affected by this digital transformation. So we've looked at, at internal um, principles. Um, working back from the future, created the connecting value stream, learning from experimentation, I think is a, is a big one. And then of course also orchestrating a network. How do you establish an infrastructure where we just looking at the example I gave earlier, how do you establish an infrastructure where you can actually share information, not just within the organization, but also outside of the organization and have both parties actually participate in sharing that value as we, as we go forward? A couple of other key things that really stand out is around the speed of transformation, um, really making sure that not only do we experiment, but we experiment extremely fast. And then finally, um, I think that's one of the core principles, really tackling big, big problems, problems that couldn't be solved before. And it really, I think, also helps us understand what is the future and what could the future uh, be. Uh, Venkat, any any other questions on the the, the principles? I I think
2: it's worthwhile thinking about what happens when we augment human skills with the power of the machine. It's one area that I think companies are today not stepping up to understanding the potential of what is possible. They still treat AI and machine intelligence as separate from human skills. I've seen too many organizations think about, oh, let's just add more software engineers. Let's, more, let's add more data uh, analysts. This is really about looking at every skill and every function and think about what is it that we can do when we augment machines with humans? What are the areas that can be automated What are the areas that can be augmented because of machines? And what are the new problems, as Arno said, that could only be solved when humans and machines work together to step up to solving, rather than simply delegating to machines or asking humans to do it by themselves. So these eight principles cover a broad domain, but hopefully companies will find one or two principles absolutely central and something that they need to focus on immediately as they embark on this transformation.
1: And, and I think one of the key things that we try to do with the principles is not just lay out the principles, but also highlights that we think is very important <clears throat> that on a very frequent basis, you actually measure the impact that your principles are having. So really looking at, at, the, at the rose plot and trying, in a qualitative manner ascertain whether you are uh, working on on big problems, whether you are working backwards, whether uh, you are augmenting uh, smart machines uh, with, uh, uh, with intelligent humans, whether you are adjusting the speed of the organization. So it really is getting those points in time where you really try to plot on a qualitative scale, as I said, how are you doing. And what you probably will find is that it is going to be a very dynamic uh, undertaking. So one month or one week when you do that assessment, you think you're doing really great. And then two or three weeks later, you actually might have regressed. But the whole idea is around, A, it's a mechanism to communicate also internally how you are measuring and how you're progressing. But more importantly, highlights and give uh, leaders the ability to tweak one or two of these initiatives, of these principles, that require more more attention, Paul.
0: Yeah, it's just one one of the principles you mentioned. I must just ask because you talk about the learning from experimentation. Now, I'm just curious. In the oil and gas sector, is my background, you know, experimentation in the field at least can be quite challenging. You know, to, failure isn't really an option. So, how easy do you think it is to implement a,
1: a principle like that? Yeah, uh, I think it's a very Amazonian uh, principle. Um, one of the things that we really want uh, the organizations to, to understand the digital, first of all, is a two-way door. And what we mean with that, it allows you, uh, because we're talking mainly about around software, around software solutions and workflow solutions, if it doesn't work, you can actually revert back to the original state. So in that sense, yeah, we're not talking about changing how we drill a well in, in deep water uh, with, with all kinds of the HSE risks associated, but really it's around uh, two-way doors. Actually, one of the things that we talk about in Amazon, which is part of our culture of innovation, is around minimal lovable products. And what we really mean with that is the ability to experiment, experiment really quickly um, and see, hey, there is value in this concept. There is value in the way that we've set this up. Um, So experimentation, doing a lot of these experiments and more importantly learn from the iteration i think is crucial to drive value and actually move forward in this uh, in this journey and um, our industry is is so renowned for managing risk uh, that is why um, we normally tend to try to, uh, to solve world hunger, or eat the entire elephant. Uh, what we, that's not what we're proposing to do. What we are proposing to do is get started with small, really point uh, uh, solutions, uh, what we call the MLPs, the minimal level products, and move forward uh, from that. Uh, Venkata, yeah. Yeah. yeah? Yeah, so if I could just add, um, we have
2: always asked companies to experiment, and R&D is really an experimentation, but what's different today is that we can run experiments with simulations. We can run experiments where we observe certain things that are very high risk to do in the field and then simulate a whole range of what is possible. And so when we bring the data and analytics domain into the culture of experimentation, we can evaluate and de-risk in a way that we couldn't have de-risked before. And the second point that I emphasize is that strategy ultimately is a portfolio of experiments. Transformation is not one big shot evolution. It's a portfolio of experiments over time. Some experiments you can do it yourself. Some experiments you do with partners. Some experiments you do with customers. And the way I differentiate what Arno said about minimum lovable product is a minimum viable product is what we demonstrate inside minimal minimal lovable product is what customers love in terms of features and functionality where we don't need to add all of this in the first stage and experiments allow we to understand what are the minimum lovable product for different customer segments so experimentation done in a portfolio sequenced fashion is really an important discipline for strategy and for decision making going forward
0: yeah, I love that term, minimum lovable product. We're gonna—I'm sure—we'll hear more of that along with the uh, digital varnish. Of course, that's the um, maybe just in the last uh, few minutes as we just maybe move into the organisational setup. Because so you talk a lot about this in your paper. I noticed that you have um, a CXO, a chief transformation officer, central to this, alongside CTO, CIO, and and so on. So why, why do you need that role? Why can't it be done
1: by a CIO? Um, let, me, let me kick it off. Um, we think that transformation is a C-suite team effort. Well, we've seen too much in the past that it has been delegated. Actually, started this discussion to a technical domain where the CIO all of a sudden has been told, "You will transform this organization. You will use technology to do it." And what we tried to demonstrate in this paper is that it's much broader than that, and it really affects every part of the organization. Hence, the need to do transformation as a C-suite team sport. Thank uh, you.
2: Yeah. Um yeah, too often digital transformation is seen as um, let's get the IT to help the current business do things better. Then we created CTO and said, oh, it's a technical issue. Then we created chief digital officer or chief data officers. All of them are point solutions. If we truly believe that this is transformation of the enterprise across functions where we have to challenge the assumptions of the functions and across companies, where we gotta challenge the assumptions of supply chain and demand chain, we need somebody who does not have the baggage of a specific function to be beholden to. So we recognize that the CTO needs to be identified and anointed with the responsibility. The CTO then takes the responsibility to coordinate with the other functions and recognize what can be done on current uh, current definitions, and what need to change. So this is really an important issue facing pretty much every company everywhere in the world, and it cannot be given to a single function. Uh, yeah, that's, that does come back to your
0: point earlier on point solutions. You're basically saying to to cut through all that, to avoid the point solutions, yeah. Yeah. Um, what about um, and just in the last couple, last two or three minutes, maybe um, one thing I'm very interested in: cost-benefit analysis. How do how does a, C, a, 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 CX, a cxo or the team around the cxo how do they really make the trade-offs between the costs and the benefits, the risks to be taken, and, so on, and all the measurement that's required for that? How do you how do you see that?
2: The, the logic of the framework has always been to manage the tension between today and tomorrow and business and technology. That's the logic of the framework. Inherent in that is resource allocation. Anything that has quantifiable business metrics for today can be justified using traditional methods of net present value, internal rate of returns, and other metrics that the companies are very familiar with anything to do with future and transformation requires an investment focus, not a capital expense focus. So it's more like a portfolio of options rather than as traditional Mm -hmm. metrics. So the CXO identifies what are the projects that are best measured using predictable quantitative metrics like internal rate of return. And what are the projects that are best seen as a portfolio of options? which connects back to our earlier conversation about portfolio of experiments. If you break it down into portfolio of sequential experiments, then we can identify the metrics, but the North Star has always been, is about reinvention. And so CXO balances today and tomorrow, CXO balances multiple metrics, and that's the only way to invest, because otherwise we will continue to invest in what we are good at today, which are measurable and not invest in what we need to be good at tomorrow, which are by definition, not easy to measure today.
1: And, yes. and I think there's, there's, a, there's a second dimension to that, to that poll. And I think that's inherent in the way that the, clouds, the cloud works is, first of all, it's a pay-as-you-go model. Yeah? If you need the resources, you can use it. You can switch them on, you can switch them off as you, as you go. One of the things that really has me excited is a, is a, is a study, uh, a real-life study that we've done with an operator in the North Sea, where we've actually been using the compute capacity, the near unlimited compute and storage capacity that we have available to help them optimize a very traditional field development. Well, we spent 120,000 reservoir simulations uh, to do that, uh, but the key point there is we're able to do that in a couple of days. And you can pay for it with your own personal credit card. And the, the output is a doubling of the NPV, it's a doubling of the recovery that wasn't feasible before. So what we are talking about is a completely different scale of investment and the ability to use pay-as-you-go as a model to really drive some of those new technologies in, 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 into home, in addition to, uh, to the future, setting up yourself for the future, as Svenka described on.
0: Great. We you know, we've covered a lot of ground. I think there's a, this is a big topic though, isn't it? Transformation. I know there's a, there's a lot of human type uh, issues in, in there as well. I, it, I think we're, we're getting close to end the time now. Do you got any, any final remarks on what it takes to develop human talent, to achieve that transformation?
1: Well, I, think, I, think, I think Venkat was, was spot on. Um, talent for today will be different than talent for tomorrow. And it really is very hard and very difficult for organizations to really identify the talent that they need so it really starts off with a leadership challenge that is what is the future direction of your organization how are the options in getting to that future state and what are the skills and the capabilities that you need to do that in other words if you think that your future lies in the ability to do um, a carbon emission monitoring using drones you probably need to invest in people that understand drones, that understand carbon emission monitoring and, and, and reporting. And it's around uh, that uh, the playing field between capabilities and talent for the future that we need that we need to, to highlight on today. Venkat, final word for you. Yeah, the human
2: resource function is actually at the center of transformation because the human resource function needs to identify how to re-educate and reskill existing people while going into the talent market and attracting people that otherwise will not come to your organization. That's the duality that many human resource organizations are not step up to take on, but they should. Because you've got to educate the current to understand where digital is going to help. And go to the marketplace and say, you bring your software skill to solve the energy problems of tomorrow. You bring your AI skills not to come up with the next consumer app, but bring your AI skill to step up to solve the environmental energy and sustainability issues in the, in the sector. Those are big challenges and we need talent to work on these big problems that Arno identified as one of those principles that we have written in the book and hopefully, people will get a chance to read the, uh, read the white paper and put these ideas into practice.
0: Well, yeah, so, so well, this is a big topic. It's very, very exciting. I think you've got some very interesting, uh, uh, as you call it, pathways and principles in that paper. I've, I've certainly enjoyed looking at it myself. So, um, Arno, Venkat, thanks very much uh, for your contribution. Uh, very much appreciate that. And for everybody, uh, thanks for listening. Hope to see you again on Sierra Week Conversations. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sierra Week Conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series
1: and previous episodes, visit us online at sierraweek.com.